Well, I just heard something in the sports that has me a little confused. Good afternoon, Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner once again. Howdy, howdy, Wisconsin. Well, okay, so here's where I'm a little perplexified. I just heard that Packers head coach, you know, the guy in charge of of what happens on the team, or on the field with the team, he is hopeful that Aaron Rodgers will start a quarterback. Too bad Joe's not in a position where, you know, he actually has influence. Oh, wait. What does he mean? The head coach, is he talking about an injury-related issue? I don't think so. What? I mean, is he starting or not? And who is it up to? That's like me hoping that I have an egg salad uh, wrap for lunch. Well, that's my call. That is what I have. I actually had it for lunch already. And spinach wrap. It was, I know, much better than it sounds. Trust me. It was really good. I dictate that decision. Now, I am hopeful. I am indeed hopeful that we are going to have a white Christmas. I have no say over that. And it doesn't sound good at all. In fact, the story in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Meg Jones, Southeast Wisconsin, actually none of Wisconsin, it looks like, is going to have a white Christmas. That is kind of a bummer. I ha- I have to admit, I'm kind of bummed about that. Uh, I, uh, I just like that little dusting of snow. And apparently, I didn't know this, there is an actual meteorological uh, benchmark for that. Apparently, it's an inch of snow, or is it a half an inch? Uh, one inch. At least one inch of snow on the ground on the morning of December 25th, regardless of whether it is snowing that day, qualifies for a white Christmas. Does not look like that's going to happen. But again, all I can do is hope and wish for that. Again, it's it looks like I'm hoping and wishing in futility. We, we engaged in the conversation yesterday as to whether Aaron Rodgers should play. That, uh, yes, he should play. No, I don't want him to play it. That's, just, that's my position on that. I don't think it's worth the risk of injury, but I understand there are people that, you know, a game like the Lions game, to close out the season, a meaningless game, ticket prices obviously plummeting. Uh, you'll be lucky if you're a ticket holder to get face value if you try to unload that ticket. And what it, it's kind of like a, it's a day after the Dow Jones drops 500 points. Okay, so there's bargain hunters out there, and there are people who normally can't get to a Packers game. Actually, it's cost prohibitive for them. And is it fair, you know, for them, whatever they pay, fifty, seventy-five, or whatever they pay, to see what you know looks a lot more like an exhibition game? I, I don't know because a lot of people on there are still paying full price. So I get all of that. I just think the best thing for the team is not to expose him in two completely meaningless games. Here's where we want to start for real. Well, didn't the show start already? Technically, yes, but not really. That's just that stuff that's at the top of my mind, and I kind of bleh it out there. <laughs> uh, whether it's really, you know, it's just, hey, this is interesting to me, and perhaps it will be interesting to you. So where I do want to start, there is a, and we'll do this uh, coming up, 
There is a long, long story in today's New York Times. I don't know if you call it an essay. I don't know if you call it an expose. I don't know if you call it an essay expose. I, I don't know what to call it. But it's all about Facebook and that any illusion of privacy that we thought we had is just shattered. I'm going to give you what I think are the bullet points on this. Again, long story, and it's being re-reported all over the media today. I'm going to give you what I think are the high points on this. But the, but the big, what I think is the big story in this story is how, you know, more than a decade ago now, we just, what were we thinking? Here, have all my private information. Here, you know, the whole world can see this. We talk about millennials who putting photos and other things out there that will haunt them for the rest of their lives. This goes much deeper than that. We, we treated Facebook like a public utility, and now people are asking and suggesting that, in fact, social media networks, the giants, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, that they should, in fact, become public utilities. Well, I don't agree with that. This is a, a true peek behind the curtain as to what Facebook was doing with your stuff. And I think the real question here, why on earth did we trust them with this type of stuff in the first place? We'll get to that in a couple of minutes. 12.15, News Radio, WTMJ. After all, there's only one more sleep till Christmas. Indeed, 1218, Merry Christmas. And on this day, this is the day, WTMJ and our friends at today's TMJ4 asking for your help to feed the hungry. Today's TMJ4 drop-off or dial all day holiday food drive going on right now as I speak. want you to fill our lobby with healthy, non-perishable food items until 7 p.m. You don't even have to get out of your car. You just... Volunteers standing by to take your donation as you pull through our driveway, 720 East Capitol Drive. Stop by until 7 p.m. to help those in need. So I mentioned a few moments ago, big, I mean, I don't know how many thousand words. This is 11 printed pages from my computer printer, the New York Times. As Facebook raised a privacy wall... It carved out an opening for tech giants. That's the headline. And I really think the story here is, why did... uh, It's amazing how, almost from the beginning, people just, here, take everything there is to know about me. And by the way, I'm not saying I'm immune to this. I I think I have been a bit more guarded, but we just, oh, this is cool. Now, obviously, it has morphed and changed since then. Long story, I just I have cherry-picked what I think are really the, the highlights here I want to share with you. Just a few paragraphs. For years, Facebook gave some of the world's largest tech companies more intrusive access to users' personal data than it has disclosed, effectively exempting those business partners from its usual privacy rules according to internal records and interviews. So in other words... 
highly preferential treatment for Facebook's business partners. The special arrangements are detailed in hundreds of pages of Facebook documents obtained by the New York Times. The records generated last year by the company's internal system for tracking partnerships provide the most complete picture yet of the social network's data sharing practices. They also underscore how personal data has become the most prized commodity of the digital age, traded on a vast cycle by some of the most scale, vast scale, by some of the most powerful companies in Silicon Valley and beyond. Personal information has always been the holy grail of marketing. The more you know about your customers. This is what survey research has been all about. This is, I mean, this has just always been. How much can we learn about the habits of our customers, about the preferences of our customers? But way before there was an Internet, this is what drove advertising. They just never had a tool such as this. So why? Why was this going on? Why were they giving this? Well, everybody was supposed to benefit. Facebook's business partners, and Facebook. The Times goes on. Pushing for explosive growth, Facebook got more users, lifting its advertising revenue. Partner companies acquired features to make their products more attractive. Facebook users connected with friends across different devices and websites. But Facebook also assumed extraordinary power over the personal information of its 2.2 billion users, control it has wielded with little transparency or outside oversight. In other words, we don't know what they're doing and no one's watching them do it. Here is the the element that's getting the most re-reporting this morning, and I think for obvious reasons. Facebook allowed Microsoft's Bing search engine to see the names of virtually all Facebook users' friends without consent. So Facebook allowed Bing to see all of your use, all your friends. Okay, but here is what I think what a lot of people are reporting on today. Facebook also gave Netflix and Spotify the ability to read Facebook users' private messages. Think about that, and I, you know what, and I think about things. I send. I, I do this on Twitter as well. Direct message, Facebook Messenger. Nobody has ever guaranteed us those are secure. I mean, we assume, right? Well, I I think that is going to come as a shock to the system. I'm a Netflix user, so uh, am I to guess? And I'm guessing on on Facebook Messenger, I, I have probably discussed what I watch on Netflix. And the question is, why do they want this stuff? Again, the more you know about your customers. And, of course, Facebook has been answering question after question after question about privacy scandals. And there have been big ones. What it seems here is this isn't just an isolated scandal, per se. But what has happened instead is the New York Times just blown the lid off of what Facebook is doing. Next, the social media, uh, social network, social media. That's what you get when you merge social media with network. The social network permitted Amazon to obtain users' names and contact information through their friends. 
and it let Yahoo view streams of friends' posts as recently as the summer, something they said they stopped doing years ago. So those are the biggies. Again, there's a lot of other stuff in those stories. So uh, what I want to do coming up here, give Facebook's side of the story, and then I'm going to have a question for you about all of this, and we'll uh, open up the phones after 1230. 1224, News Radio WTMJ. I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Only a hippopotamus will do. Don't want a dog, no dinky tinker toy. Kyle, don't make me retract my request for Christmas bumpers. This is like, I have complained about this Christmas bumper for 15 years of radio. <laughs> Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. <sighs> um, to, listen, if you've got Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer queued up, you can go ahead and shelve that one um, as well. Uh, it's fine. It's fine. It's all good. Merry Christmas. Now. A few moments ago, I talked about, started talking about the New York Times story and Facebook and, and what they're doing with your personal data. So Steve Satterfeld, Facebook's director of privacy and public policy, did speak to New York Times. He said none of the partnerships, and again, if you're just joining us, Facebook has these partnerships with the corporations it does business with, where they're giving, you, giving them a lot of your stuff said none of the partnerships violated users' privacy or the FTC agreement. Contracts required the companies to abide by Facebook policies, he added. In essence, because they have a direct link with Facebook, his argument is this wasn't really giving it to anyone on the outside. Hmm. Maybe if you squint. Still, Facebook executives have acknowledged missteps over the past year. We've got to work to regain people's trust, Satterfield said. Satterfield, protecting people's information requires stronger teams, better technology, and clearer policies. And that's where we've been focused for most of 2018. He said the partnerships were one area of focus, and that Facebook was in the process of winding many of them down, found no abuse by their partners, Amazon, Microsoft, Yahoo, said they used the data appropriately but declined to discuss the sharing deals in detail. Again, New York Times got their hands on this stuff. Facebook says that it had mismanaged some of its partnerships, allowing certain companies access to continue long after they had shut down the features that required the data. In other words, the businesses didn't need it anymore, but they were still getting it. With most of the partnerships, Satterfield said the FTC agreement did not require the social network to secure users' consent because Facebook considered the partners extensions of itself, service providers that allowed users to interact with Facebook friends. In other words, it served Facebook and it served Facebook users, so you didn't have to know about it. And then you have Netflix and another company getting... Your private messages. Messages. So, we'll see if anyone has an interest in this. We'll open the door. If no one walks in, then we'll close the door. Are, are we surprised by this? How did we just allow this behemoth to grow and let it eat all of our data like a monster, our private personal information? And why, 
on the onset, weren't we a little more concerned about what they might do with all of the stuff that we were giving them, and is it too late to put the genie back in the bottle? We'll tee that up in just a few minutes. News Radio WTMJ. That's what I'm talking about, Kyle. Good man. Good man. (laughs) Merry Christmas. We are talking about the, I guess you would call it an expose that uh, the New York Times has today. No surprise, Facebook is doing even more with our personal data with its business partners than we thought. I have two questions for you on this. One, uh, I mean, I, I, I think, look, They're a private entity, and I guess we didn't have an expectation of privacy, or we shouldn't have had, but we did. I mean, would you think that the personal messages, they're called personal messages for a reason on Facebook, that they're going to give those to one of their business partners, in this case, to uh, the Bing search engine, and actually, uh, no, Netflix and Spotify. Netflix and Spotify got the private messages. I guess not so private after all. I think this is a violation of what a reasonable person would expect. And what were we thinking in the first place? And, and now it's not just Facebook. All of this personal stuff that that business have, and it, it is the holy grail, as they said. It, it is the most highly coveted commodity of the digital age, personal data. Do you have thoughts on this? 414-799-1620, the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, to Ken in Germantown. Ken, hi, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi. I just want to hit the private message part. What part of private has to be re-explained? <laughs> that's right yeah, in the word. A, so yeah. to assume it would be meaning, I'm assuming the, the definition of the word private. Well, that's look, I agree with you. I think clearly that that is a betrayal. It's a violation. Here's the thing, though, Ken, and I think you're going to agree with this. We're naive if we think this is just Facebook. We have gotten so used to using the digital world to do things, be it purchase, be it communicate. We, I mean, boy, we just unlocked that door a long time ago, and I don't know if we can ever lock it again. Oh, yeah, I mean, what we put out there, but like I said, if I send a private message to someone else, right. that would be well, my assumption. It's nothing I posted on my site, nothing I looked up and could expect a, a retailer to look up if I bought something on Amazon that, you know, also they know my buying habits. I assume that. But when I assume private message, that's an assumption that part would remain private. Okay, I, and, and you're fixating on the one that I think is the big one here, I, and here's why. Here's what I think you're getting at, Ken, and when you say private, we treated Messenger, you know, be it direct message on Twitter, be it Facebook, really as kind of a mail system, right? Like sealing an envelope and mailing it. This is like this is like the postal service opening up your mail and selling it to someone else. Exactly. That's what it is. Ken, thanks a lot for the call. Thank you. I I yep. I really think he's exactly right about that. Again, they, you know, we are we are making a lot of assumptions here, and I don't dispute that. And look, it's been years since legitimate questions were first raised in terms of 
what are they doing with it? Who are they giving it to? How private is this really? And what the New York Times has exposed today shows they will sell just about anything. Now, what they're saying is, now, it's not really selling your information. These are partnerships that we had where they are use these customers are using Facebook. So we didn't really have to tell you. One, I do not accept that explanation. Two, though, I, I think the previous caller had this exactly right. The scariest one is, uh, you know, we assumed. We assumed private messages were secure. I guess we really had no reason to assume that. But I think it is a, a violation, as the analogy I use. It'd be like the Postal Service opening your mail and telling someone else about it. That That's, in essence, what they did here. I would argue Facebook employees shouldn't be able to see personal messages. And there are those that say, as a result of this, we need to start looking at these social networks as public utilities. I don't know if that's the answer, but I do know it's going to be appearing much more attractive to people as a result of this. To Dana in Hales Corners. Dana, you're on TMJ. Or good afternoon, actually. <laughs> yes, um, it is. This is precisely why I don't have a Facebook account, and I never have. And I know when people find out I don't, I'm not on Facebook, they look at me like I have three heads, but this is why. I, I've tried to set one up twice over the years. Years ago I tried, and then maybe in the last year or so again. And I just hit a point where I was like, why do they need to know this much of my personal information? And I just thought, no, I'm out of here. It, it isn't worth it. And I didn't do that. I signed up in 2009. It's hard to believe. It's almost 10 years since I have been on Facebook. And, you know, actually, Dana, you are not the first person to tell me that. I have a text that's very similar to that. Are you on any of the social media, Twitter, anything like that? I don't have any accounts. I I have an Instagram account just so that I can look at other people's, but I have no information Ah. on mine, and I don't post anything. I'm not on Twitter. I think Twitter is stupid. And I I read blogs. I mean, I'm very active on the Internet, but I just, I do have a LinkedIn account. I lost my job. I felt like I had to do a LinkedIn account, and I really hated doing that. But I did just for professional reasons, and as soon as I'm employed again, it's either going completely bye-bye or it's going to really get scaled back. Because I just, I don't like having an Internet presence. I just don't trust. Dana, thanks a lot for the call. And I will tell you, you are, you are not alone in that regard. I will uh, share a couple of texts coming up. If you want to get in, you can still get in on this. 414-799-1620. News Radio WTMJ. Pretty paper, pretty ribbons of blue. Crowded streets. 1244 News Radio WTMJ. Jerry in for Jeff. We are talking about the huge story the New York Times has today about what Facebook is doing with your personal information. The Times reviewed more than 270 pages of reports generated by a system, records that reflect just a portion of Facebook's wide ranging deals with other businesses. Among the revelations was that Facebook obtained data from multiple partners for a controversial friend suggestion tool called People You May Know. The feature introduced in 2008 continues even though some Facebook users have objected to it, unsettled by its knowledge of their real-world relationships. In other words, 
How do they know I might know that person out here in the real world, not in cyberspace? That has always freaked me out. Gizmodo and other news outlets have reported cases of the tools recommending friend connections between patients of the same psychiatrist. So in other words, basically his patient list, or hers, estranged family members and a harasser and his victim. Facebook, in turn, used contact lists from the partners, including Amazon, Yahoo, and a Chinese company, which has been flagged as a security threat by American intelligence officials, to gain deeper insight into people's relationships and suggest more connections, the records show. We have a text on that that I think goes right to the heart of this, of that passage that I just read. I'm not a Facebook user, uh, Chris writes. However, my wife is. Why would anyone believe their info would be private? There is nothing private. People need to admit that having a worldwide public forum is just that, public. The commodity is you, which is always for sale. That's an excellent, excellent text. Another one. People say that the forms, uh, people rather, that use forms of social media are throwing themselves out there. Maybe we as a society should think about what we do online. Facebook, Twitter, and everything else can be tracked. People need to be more careful on what they post, uh, look at, and say. Your behavior is such a valuable commodity. Last year, there was this interesting phenomenon. Uh, Netflix had the Christmas movie, The uh, Christmas Prince, or whatever it was. And they tweeted this snarky tweet to the 16 people who watched uh, Christmas Prince 47 times or whatever. Who hurt you? And everyone was freaked out. Well, wait a minute. So how closely? It's like, seriously? How do you think Netflix knows what shows to recommend for you? I, I have, there's no doubt in my mind that Netflix knows by the way, I'm watching Travelers, a great sci-fi series that now is exclusive on Netflix. Season 3. They know how many episodes I watch in a row. They know when I watch. They, they know that for everything I watch. If I go back and watch a, a favorite episode of Star Trek, they can flag me as a geek knowing I watched it three, four, or five times in the last year. They know all of that. But Netflix is one example. Facebook is another. A couple of other texts on this. Um, to, 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 if people want to be 100% sure that all their information stays private, maybe try talking to people in person and or writing rather than using social media. Otherwise, good luck. Well, that, that's exactly right. I absolutely agree with that. And by the way, topic for a different day, but a good topic nonetheless. Exactly what the the listener there touched on. What these social media networks, this vicarious communication, we don't know how to communicate in person at all. Now, that's it is an overgeneralization. But people are really getting lousy at interpersonal communication, i.e. face-to-face, because... We are constantly doing it behind the security of a keyboard and a screen. It's a great point. Uh, let's see. Sam writes, 
Jerry, people scream privacy yet spill their guts out on social media. Well, that that's where I started this. We did this. I, I There is no dis- disputing that. Another texter. You have no right to outrage if you don't thoroughly read the EULA for everything you do and every site you sign up for. By the way, that is... Uh, uh, I don't know if this is a joke or real, but a couple of years ago, one of my kids said, do you know what is the most commonly told lie each and every day? I have read and understand the uh, terms of use agreement. Nobody. This. You click on it, uh, so it's open, and then you say you've read it. Another one, when calling into Charter Communications for an issue with my cable box, the employee addressed my box and told me all of the shows I had recorded with my DVR. Yeah, the, all of that stuff, DVR box, you know, all of that, this, this says, if you, if you didn't watch Mad Men, the last couple of seasons of Mad Men, which was about the advertising industry in the 1960s, Starts in 1960, ends in 1970. The series did. But the late 60s, when computers were beginning to invade everything, be it punch cards, they they saw the future coming. They never could have imagined this. But they were realizing the direction that technology was moving, that they could learn more and more and more and more about the customer. I mean, the ultimate goal here is... Commercial messages customized just for you personally. I heard about that with digital radio five-some years ago. It never really materialized. But yes, as an earlier texter said, we are the commodity, and it's just that simple. 1251 News Radio, WTMJ. Twelve fifty four News Radio WTMJ Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. One more text on the Facebook topic, and it's it's a little off topic, but it's really good nonetheless. And here it, it, it deals it deals with what I would call a separate issue where uh, where Facebook is concerned, social media is concerned. I never know what's going on in my family for gatherings because I don't go on Facebook. They always ask, why didn't I come? I say, I didn't know about it. They say it was on Facebook. I say, why don't you just call me? Okay, I I can't, not directly that way, but my wife will ask me, did you hear about this? Did you hear this person's in the hospital? Did you hear about that? Did you hear about this? No, no. Where are you getting all of this? Well, on Facebook. And it's amazing. I mean, I've been a reluctant Facebook user that way in terms of uh you know, keeping up with what's going on. I, I don't know when she goes on Facebook, but yeah, this person—that's what uh, you know. This person's died. This has happened. That's happened. And fortunately, I have her. And then she updates me. Hey, did you hear about this? Hey, did you hear about that? Hey, did you hear? And I am in the dark. So I keep telling myself, wow, and then it's amazing the number of people that she is friended with that I'm not. And I'm, well, all right, I guess I need to 
at least peruse Facebook. I have here's the way I have used the social media for most of the last ten years is when I had a talk show on a Monday through Friday basis. They were tools that, I, for personal reasons, I hardly use them. And now that I just you know, I, I get to uh, the honor of being on WTMJ from time to time, but other than that, I you know I've moved on. And I don't have any self-promotion element on a regular basis, which, by the way, I do not miss at all. And that was largely what I used, for which I used social media. And now, just as a consumer, uh, you know, every once in a while, I'll retweet or I'll comment on a tweet. A little bit more on Facebook. I'm starting, starting a little bit. To, as I said, to engage with people in the way that my wife has, and I've had to do it, you know, through her. Okay, who's going on with this nephew, or what's going on with that, you know, and so on and so on. I do know this it's a genie that will not go back in the bottle. And it's a free commodity to the end user. Will that change? If that changed, then clearly these other things would have to change. I, I, I will be honest, I am mildly surprised that they haven't started charging users or even talking about it. What that tells you is they're making buckets and buckets and buckets and buckets and buckets and buckets of money the way it is right now. And as a result, they don't need to charge you, and that in and of itself should tell you something. One other thing on that, Netflix. Netflix. What is that? What am I paying now? Uh, Eleven bucks a month, something like that. How does that work? That seems like a very low fee for what you get, which is why so many people use it. Where and they don't they don't advertise, and they very closely guard the number of users that they have. So anyway, it, believe me, it's a topic that we'll be talking about when I say we, not just me doing a show, but we as a society will be talking about for a long, long time. ton of stuff to get to between now and 3 o'clock. In the next hour, I push this back a little bit. President Trump putting his thumb on the scale of military justice. Uh, De Pere in the Green Bay area, a battle over transgender rights ordinance passed by the city of De Pere, one that churches, at least for the moment, have won. We'll get to that. And speaking of religion, can you be a Muslim and a Republican? Apparently some Republicans in one Texas county say, no, those two don't go together, and we need to do something about that. We'll see what you think about that. And one for fun coming up at 2.35, set your alarm, is Die Hard, a Christmas movie. We have the evidence. 12.59, News Radio WTMJ. One oh nine. good afternoon, Wisconsin. Hour two of the Jeff Wagner-less show. Cherry Bader filling in rest of the week, and then uh, Wednesday through Friday, 
uh, of next week, and just great to be here. There is a topic, well, I should say there's a sidebar story to the topic that we took up in the last hour, social media intri- uh, invasion into your privacy and, and so on, so on, so on. Um, this from today's TMJ4. You may be wishing for a smart watch for Christmas. Millions wear fitness devices to track their sleep, heart rate, blood pressure, and more. Employers are using wellness incentives, such as extra cash for workers who pair their fitness trackers to their health systems. So if you allow your employer to access the data from your uh, fitness tracker, Andrew Boyd, Associate Professor of Biomedical and Health Information, warns that your information could be scrutinized. In other words, he's saying, before you just grab the cash that your employer is offering you, understand what you're giving up. And I think this is what got us into the whole Facebook, because we had no clue what we were giving up. He says, your heart rate data sounds innocuous, but it's actually quite revealing, said Boyd. He urges you to question how your insurance company uses or shares that information. How do we prevent future insurance companies, future health companies, or future employers from using it to discriminate against you, said Boyd. Personal trainer Lex Jeremillo, owner of Motifaith Fitness, showed us the fitness trackers, they write. He straps to all of his Hales Corners clients. He says it holds them accountable and feels the same about companies keeping that information private. It's something we have to take seriously. So they reached out to Apple and Fitbit. A spokesman for Fitbit said, and I am the only one, uh, I think, well, I know my wife has a Fitbit. I don't. Um, I believe our two kids do as well. Fitbit is committed to protecting consumer privacy and putting users in control of their personal data. We never sell customer personal data, and we do not share customer personal information, except in the limited circumstances described in our privacy policy. For example, at users' requests, like when users choose to share their data with other apps to help them stay on track or share stats and information with their friends and family in the Fitbit community, I, I just see it as another way, just caveat emptor, let the buyer beware or just be cautious. But again, that is, it's not just the direction in which technology is flowing. It's the direction in which society, culture is flowing, and I, I just think we've gotten very comfortable with giving that up. Uh, this is a story that is several days old. I, I, it's been on the stack, I think, since uh, I think since Monday, maybe just yesterday. I don't recall. This is uh, essentially this story is about President Trump in some the way some people define it, interfering with military justice. The long and winding case of Major Matthew L. Goldstein had all the elements of a story that would seize President Trump's attention. A Green Beret charged by the Army in the killing of a man linked to the Taliban. Thorny questions about America's long-standing entanglement in Afghanistan. And a Fox News program that lauded the officer as a war hero. So here's what happened. On Sunday, President Trump announced on Twitter that he would examine the case of Major Goldstein using verbatim language aired just minutes before by his favorite program, Fox and Friends. So in other words, Fox and Friends highlighted this story. The president saw it, had no other background, and decided 
he was going to jump in. At the request of many, I will be reviewing the case of a U.S. military hero. Call them a hero. Major Matt Goldstein, who is charged with murder, Mr. Trump wrote, he could face the death penalty from our own government after he admitted to killing a terrorist bomb maker while overseas. So immediately, here's the way the New York Times reports this. With that tweet, Mr. Trump made another extraordinary intervention, and that's the key word here, intervention into the American judicial system, in this case military justice. A president who just last week threatened to stop a Justice Department effort to extradite a Chinese tech executive and who spends most days vilifying the special counsel had now stepped into a complicated legal and ethical case that goes to the heart of the fraught politics of the military's rules of engagement. So what exactly happened? It's up in the air, but I'll tell you what we know in a couple of minutes. News Radio WTMJ. WTMJ and our friends at today's TMJ4 need your help to feed the hungry today, right now. Today's TMJ4 drop off or dial all day, going on today, food drive. I want you to fill our lobby with healthy, non-perishable food today till 7 p.m. Don't even need to leave the comfort of your car to donate. We'll have volunteers standing by to take your donation as you pull through our driveway. 720 East Capitol Drive. Help those in need. That's until 7 this evening. Started sharing the story of Major Matthew L. Goldstein facing a murder charge. And President Trump saw the story on Fox and Friends and immediately tweeted that he may get involved. Because the case has yet to be adjudicated, there are those that are concerned about that. Here's the story in a nutshell. Goldstein was in Afghanistan in 2010 during the battle for the city of Marja in the volatile Helmand province, the New York Times writes. Huge battle. More than 15,000 American, Afghan, British, Canadian, Danish, and Estonian troops assaulted the Taliban stronghold. Several months, dozens of Americans killed, hundreds wounded. Uh, so that, that's what happened. In February of that year, a roadside bomb killed two Marines, Sergeant Jeremy McQuarrie and Lance Corporal Larry M. Johnson, who had been working with Goldstein's Green Beret team. There are conflicting accounts of what happened next. Army documents, which claim to recount what Major Goldstein told the CIA, suggest that he and his team began clearing homes nearby, looking for the source of the roadside bomb and eventually finding explosive materials similar to those used in the bomb that killed the Marines. The team took the suspected bomb maker back to its base, where the Afghan ran into a tribal leader who identified him as a member of the Taliban. The tribal leader became frightened that the suspected bomb maker, if released, would report him to the Taliban and he would be killed, the army documents say. The next year, in 2011, Goldstein took a polygraph test as part of a CIA job interview. Applicants to the CIA are warned to disclose any skeletons because uh, it's better than having it found out the other way. Major Goldstein said the suspected bomb maker was not on a list of people whom American forces were authorized to kill without following rules of engagement. But Goldstein and another American soldier is concerned that the man, if released, would kill American troops or report that the tribal leader was working with Americans, took him off base, shot and killed him, and buried his remains in a shallow grave. 
Later that night, Goldstein and two other soldiers dug up the remains, brought them back to their base, and burned them in a pit used to dispose of trash. The Army says he told the CIA. So the initial reaction was uh, he, he received some punitive measures. But then in 2016... He went on a Fox News interview with Brett Baer and asked whether he had killed the suspected bombmaker, and he said yes. That prompted a reopening of the investigation, and he now faces a murder charge. Fox and Friends had a story on this, which apparently the president saw, and now the president is looking at getting involved. Here is what I would say about this. I have a concern about it becoming a habit for any president, not just President Trump, to start preemptively using pardons. He hasn't said that, but his tweet is suggests to some people that he may look at pardoning Goldstein before he his case is ever adjudicated. He, of course, did that with Joe Arpaio. There was no sentence imposed. And the president pardoned him. For whatever reason, the Founding Fathers gave presidents that constitutional power. They chose to do that. I think it's a dangerous, slippery slope. In this case, this certainly sounds like a submarine execution, and it sounds like murder. Whatever the motive. Now, I don't know. And I'm not judging the merits of the case, but I'm saying it sounds very serious, and it seems hard to look at it any other way. But I can't say that definitively because it hasn't been adjudicated. I don't think the president should, if he is considering pardoning him, do that before the case is adjudicated. I know this isn't a requirement, but historically, pardons have been used to correct miscarriages of justice, not preempt them. There is, of course, one glaring exception to that case. That's Gerald Ford pardoning Richard Nixon for any crimes he may have committed or would later come to light. Now, for years, I criticized Ford for that. The conventional thinking today is, look, if he hadn't done that, Nixon was going to be indicted. Okay? He avoided impeachment by resigning, but those allegations were still hanging over his head, and he almost certainly would have been indicted. Gerald Ford decided the nation needs to heal. And I'm not going it can't heal if the nation is riveted by the trial of Richard Nixon, which it would have been. It it it, it it would have continued to tear the country apart. With the benefit of 40-some plus 44 years history, I now agree with the pardon. Because it would have torn the country in two. Well, it was already torn in two. It just it would have continued. But President Trump seems on a different track here. Where if he doesn't like where justice is headed, he heads it off. Now, again, it's not a trend yet, but I'm concerned that he may go down that road. 
and I would like him to stay out of, it would be my preference that if any president stayed out of criminal cases until they reach their final resolution. And then if as president of the United States, he doesn't like a sentence, he doesn't like whatever, he can deal with that. But this, why is this a big deal? Because this has the potential to really hamstring prosecutors. You're trying to prosecute a case, and the president is making noise like he may just end it. In this case, I think there's a very good chance, if he did something like that, he would be granting a pardon to someone who should be convicted of murder. Again, I don't know that, because we haven't heard all the evidence. It hasn't been aired in a court. Same thing goes for the president. He doesn't know either. Again, this is not Trump-specific. When other presidents intervene, depending on the level of intervention... I have a problem with that, too. Uh, someone's trying to compare this to the Trayvon Martin case. President Obama spoke about Trayvon Martin. That's apples and oranges to what we're talking about here. It's a, <laughs> that is completely different. Yes, President Obama had a habit of speaking before he knew the facts on cases. That in and of itself was bad enough. This is that on steroids. This is taking direct action to circumvent the judicial process. I think it's dangerous, and I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't want to see it become a habit for any president. One twenty-five News Radio WTMJ. Everybody's waiting for the man with the bad cars. Christmas is coming again. He's got a sleigh full. It's not going to stay full. He's got stuff to drop out. 127 News Radio WTMJ. Jerry and for Jeff. Couple of texts on this. I disagree with both of them. The only ethical issue here is sending Americans off to war and telling them that they're not allowed to kill people who are trying to kill them. Well, you can't some you can't summarily execute someone who's not trying to kill you in that moment. I mean, no, there are rules of engagement. He's a bomb maker. He is a potential threat. You can't take him out and shoot him and bury him. I mean, that's what we're talking about here. Again, those are the alleged facts. If that's what a court of law comes to prove, then he should face the punishment. If there's credible reason to believe there's a miscarriage of justice after that process is completed then the president can use his pardon powers as he sees fit. Now, he does have the right to do it, every authority to do it now. I just disagree with exercising it in that way. Again, that's not Trump-specific. I would have a problem with any president doing that. Then here's an interesting one from Nancy. First thing is, why did Brett Baer have to be so nosy? Nancy, it's an interview. You, when you sit down for an interview on a national TV network with Brett Baer, you better expect there's going to be some tough questions or don't go. It's, you're not being nosy in an interview, Nancy, unless you ask boxers or briefs or some other personal question like that. 
Uh, if soldier's life is ruined, may uh, Brett's need for a story haunt him forever. And don't sit down with him. He didn't tie him in the chair. I'm not going to put that on Brett Bear. If he did this, it should come to light. And I'm saying if. If it's as it appears, it should come to light, and he should face the consequences. If there's a reasonable suggestion that he's not treated fairly through the judicial process, then President Trump could and should exercise his pardon powers. It's it's just, to me, that simple. All right, coming up after one thirty, Can you be a Republican and a Muslim? Apparently, there are some people in Texas who don't think so. One thirty-five News Radio WTMJ Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. This is a story that has been around uh, maybe for a couple of months now. But given I don't do a talk radio show every day, these are the types of things I don't notice every day anymore. When I did a talk show every day, these are the type of things I would notice every day. So, I I don't know, Jeff himself may have talked about this, other shows may have talked about this, but it continues to fester, and a decision is uh, coming in January. Let me just read snippets of different media reporting on this, just a little bit of each. An effort to remove a Muslim from Tarrant County Republican Party leadership in Texas is expanding. This story is from the Star-Telegram. I believe that is at Fort Worth. I think so. In addition to push to remove Shahid Shafi, a Muslim, from the post of vice chairman, some Republicans are hoping to oust at least three more people from positions within the party. Others targeted include Darrell Easton, who heads the Tarrant County Republican Party, Kelly Cannon, a GOP precinct chairwoman believed to be the subject in a party member's email describing a Democrat who's managed to obtain the position of area leader, Lisa Grimaldi Abdul Karim, a GOP precinct chairwoman and vice chairwoman of the Tarrant County Republican Recruitment Division, who's married to a Muslim. Calls for these Republicans to be removed as GOP leaders were detailed in several emails Republican Dale Atterbury sent to others in the party. Uh, This started in October. This is a political campaign, just like any other campaign, but for a party office, Atterbury wrote on October 18th, noting there are two people in office who don't belong there, as neither one is the best interest of good conservatives, loyal Republicans, and avid Tea Partiers in mind. Two conservative pages, the Wall Street Journal and the National Review, uh, Jim Garrity, writing of the National Review, the Wall Street Journal on Monday in the print editions, had a short editorial on this. The midterm election results in Texas weren't exactly an occasion for Republican whooping and hollering. Ted Cruz narrowly held his Senate seat against Beto O'Rourke, and previously secure House members such as John Culberson and Pete Sessions lost in the suburbs. We're going to guess the last thing that Texas Republicans thought they needed now is a controversy over Shahid Shafi, 
Dr. Shafi came from the, to the U.S. from Pakistan in 1990, is a surgeon, and is vice chairman of the Republican Party in Tarrant County, which includes Fort Worth. A fraction of local Republicans are seeking a recall vote next month to turn him out of his party job. The excuse is that Islam is contra a contradiction in contradiction with American values and the party. Now, this faction's initiative is an ugly post-election look for the party, isn't lost on its leadership. Dr. Shafi has received support from Senator Cruz, Texas Land Commissioner George P. Bush, I believe Governor Abbott as well, and the county chairman who appointed him. Dr. Shafi, for his part, isn't put off by the mini-revolt. Anyone wondering if one can be a practicing Muslim, which I am, a good American, which I am, a Republican, which I am, I'm a living example that one can be all three. And the Wall Street Journal says we hope he wins the recount vote. Garrity. If there's a serious argument for why Dr. Shafi should not be vice chairman, his critics should offer it. As it is now, their argument boils down to the belief that a Muslim should not be in a Republican Party position. As one of the most vocal critics put it in a Facebook post, Shafi is a practicing Muslim, so yes, he is a proponent of Sharia law. Ergo, every practicing Muslim should be automatically disqualified from ever holding a position in the GOP. She has also declared ISIS is Islam, with all the public fakery removed. The argument contends that there is negligible difference between the Muslim family living down the street and Osama bin Laden. She went on to write, right or wrong, those who oppose Dr. Shafi feel very passionately that it is a big mistake to advance a practicing Muslim to a visible party post. If It's not that he himself is going to affect party policy. It's the symbolism of the act. Yes, it symbolizes that practicing Muslims and that people of any religious belief are welcome in the Republican Party. The fact that some people so vehemently disagree with that is greatly clarifying. There's more, but I think that gives you the idea. I would like your thoughts on this. And I think this is... A, can a practicing Muslim in America hold a leadership position in the Republican Party? Yes or no, and explain your answer at the Academic Mortgage Talk and Text Line, 414-799-1620. News Radio WTMJ. One forty-three News Radio WTMJ. Jerry in for Jeff. We are talking about a practicing Muslim who was given a leadership role in a Texas County Republican Party, and there's a sliver of people who want to remove him in a recall vote. He's a doctor, a surgeon. Two more paragraphs from Jim Garrity on this before I uh, head to the phones. Shafi's foes have set up have set up a classic heads I win. Tales you lose scenario by citing the Islamic concept of taqiyah, basically a moral justification for strategic lying, and declaring Shafi is following the law and tenets of his theocracy, which includes lying to the non Muslim because it advances the cause of Islam. This means that no amount of denials or counter evidence produced by Shafi will ever be enough. His work as a surgeon, his community service with the Lions Club, 
historical society, nature center, schools, churches, his family. Everything he's done in his life will be dismissed as just an ever more elaborate disguise for his nefarious intentions. In the worldview of Shafi's critics, everyone who likes and supports him staying in this role is a gullible sucker, including notable softies and squishes, such as Texas Governor Greg Abbott, Senator Ted Cruz, Texas House Speaker Joe Strauss, Travis County Republican Party Chairman Matt Mikowiak, the State Republican Party, and the Gang of the Federalists. My opinion on this is very simple and to the point. This is repugnant bigotry at its worst. This is exactly what America shouldn't be. This is exactly what the Republican Party shouldn't be. And I pray that he is not removed from this position. To Rizwan in New Berlin, you're on WTMJ. Hi, how are you doing? Good. As a practicing Muslim, I actually believe that there's no contradiction between one's political beliefs and one's religious beliefs. Uh, and this is just providing a further wedge that we've seen time and time again uh, with Muslims that keeps coming up where people try to malign the Muslim or a Muslim to uh, say that you can't fit in or can't assimilate into the society that we're in. Uh, if this person, Dr. Shafi's beliefs allow him, they, they do allow him to be a member of the Republican Party, and if he wishes to exercise his political rights, I, there's nothing wrong with that. Having someone who self-identifies as a Republican basically say that all Muslims are Osama bin Laden, is it saddens me. I mean, it, it breaks my heart on a, just on a, on a personal level. But further, Rizwan, it is, it, it is exactly uh, the Republican Party gets everything it deserves if they remove him from this position. Definitely. I mean, even myself, as, uh, who I consider myself to be an independent uh, there's times where you have to just look at the issues that are at hand and uh, kind of go with, with the issues at hand. And my religious beliefs may or may not sway any policies I would make. It's just how I personally feel about a certain topic. And I even disagree with other people in my family, other people in my faith, over certain topics just because there's, there's really no religious basis in some of these political points. Thanks a lot for the great call. Appreciate it. Uh, the next caller has, I think, a, a great analogy here. Jane in Milwaukee, go ahead. Yes, um, this takes me back to my youth when I can remember when President Kennedy was running for office, and there was a lot of talk at that time about the fact that he was a Roman Catholic and therefore would have all his allegiance to the Pope and could not serve properly. Again, um, this just doesn't make sense to those of us who are thinking with our brains and not with hatred in our hearts. And it is just, uh, uh, that's this is hatred. This is bigotry and this is hatred. And I have spent the last 15 years on the radio, Jane, saying this isn't what the Republican Party, this isn't what conservatism is all about, which is why if the Republican Party wants any kind of future, they have to beat this down. I agree. I'm Republican myself, and this makes this turn to my stomach. Jane, thanks a lot for the call. If you have any thoughts on this, and if you want to disagree, I will do so as civilly as possible, but it's difficult for me to entertain an opposing view that supports bigotry, because that's what this is. Another one making, to a degree, the JFK analogy uh, Renee from New Berlin writes, 
as long as he doesn't force his beliefs on his post, then yes, he should be allowed to run. So let's say you're Catholic. Should you be allowed to run for public office? Not all practicing Muslims are bad people. This is exact. That, Renee, is exactly what this faction of the county Republican Party in Texas is attempting to say. That all Muslims are bad people. And there needs to be no space afforded, no quarter given, not just in the Republican Party, but in the conservative movement. And I ruffled a lot of listeners' feathers on different radio stations in Wisconsin in the past couple of years by pointing that out. That that, that, that bigotry is not a conservative value. This is bigotry. This guy is as stellar an individual by all accounts. So Ted Cruz is some softy rube? Really? Greg Abbott is some softy rube? Really? Now here's what I'm hoping. Here's what I'm praying. That this group has actually gotten far more attention than it deserves. But I think you are seeing national, national conservative media outlets like the Wall Street Journal opinion page, like the National Review, push back on this because they don't want to take any chances and that these bigots should be put in their place. And if there needs to be room taken away from anyone in the Republican Party, it's bigots. And yes, I'm very passionate about this. 150 News Radio WTMJ. One fifty-three. Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner. One further text on this. I guess actually, if you did want to get in, you could get in right now. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. I do have to say I'm relieved that thus far I haven't had to disagree with anyone on this. I mean, there may be people out there. I am assuming there are people out there that disagree with me, but either don't want to text or call, and that's fine. I. I would certainly listen to what you have to say. I, <laughs> I, you're never going to convince me, because this is just bigotry. We are talking about a Muslim surgeon, pillar of the community in the Fort Worth, Texas area, who was made a vice chairman of the Tarrant County Republican Party, and there's a sliver of people who do not believe that you can be both a Muslim and a Republican. It just doesn't work that the values aren't the same, I think that's nonsense. This reminds me of when the Republican Party, the conservative movement, was beside itself when Caitlyn Jenner announced herself as a Republican. Oh, what are they going to do with that? Transgender. The Republican Party should accept people of all races, religion, if this guy, I mean, when you read his resume, he's a surgeon, belongs to a lot of service clubs. He's been a pillar of the community, but he's a Muslim. He can't be a Republican, too. That just doesn't work. This, 
This is an element of the Republican Party that the Republican Party is in denial, of which it's in denial. Even though it has reared its ugly head in different episodes which have involved the president. Text, the Peter, uh, this is Peter from the South Side. These Republicans down in Texas, I don't understand this. Uh, these people are some of the nicest people I've ever met. But my point is, these guys, and this is an interesting point, these guys get into a car accident, and they need a surgeon, and he's the only one uh, that there. Would he have the right to say, whoa, you're Catholic. I don't want to operate on you. How would they feel? That's, a, that's an interesting analogy. Or, you know, Peter, you could, you could take, it's an interesting analogy, but Peter, just take the whole, oh, you're a Catholic. How would someone who has acted like a bigot toward this guy like to look up from an operating table and see him? Now, I trust that he's a professional surgeon and this wouldn't impact his performance in any way. I, I just sometimes wonder how the conservative movement has gotten here. Because I really, really do not understand. And again, it is entirely possible that this is just a couple of troublemakers who have gotten way more national attention than they deserve. And again, if anything should be rooted out of the conservative, conservative movement, it is this bigotry. And that's what I, I certainly hope. I mean, how much more Republican firepower can the guy have behind him? Cruz, Abbott, at all? I hope this ends well for the doctor, because if it does, well, one, it's the right thing to do. And that's, to me, first and foremost. There is no reason to do this to this man. It's the right thing to do, and the, the political optics, yes, the politics of it are horrible. That, however, is secondary to me. Doing the right thing is primary. All right. I'm going to try to get to a lot of stuff, kind of a rapid-fire round in the next half hour. What really happened in that courtroom yesterday? What really happened? What's the real story behind the Michael Flynn non-sentencing yesterday? Uh, I want to quickly mention something that happened closer to home in court here in Wisconsin. I have to at least briefly mention a story I've teased like four times, and it's out of Illinois. It's a lawsuit. I at least have to spend a couple of minutes on that. And because just because I've been talking about it and talking about it. But then after two thirty, I call it one for fun. We've had a lot I've had a text saying we have great topics today. Thank you. I appreciate that. They've all been pretty heavy-duty, newsy stuff. We're going to have fun after 2.30. And somehow I suspect it will be mostly men calling in on this topic. Is it or isn't it? Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? (laughs) There's a piece of evidence out now that would suggest for you skeptics, indeed, it is. 159 News Radio WTMJ. The third and final hour 
of the Jeff Wagnerless Show, Jerry Bader, filling in. Great to have you along. Boy, oh boy. A decade ago, he was seen as the future of the Republican Party. So conservative, his economic theories, the third rail to Republicans, and that's too radical. Now seen by many as a rhino, the imprimatur that was to last a generation, not so much. For outgoing Speaker uh, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan, his farewell speech today covered a lot of ground, including the divisive state of politics. i got to say, I leave here as convinced I was at the start that we face no challenge that can be overcome by putting pen to paper on good sound policy, by addressing head-on the problems of the day. And he takes a drink of water. The state of politics, though, is another question. And frankly, that's one I don't have an answer for. You know, we have a good sense of what our politics should look like. A great clash of ideas. A civil, passionate discourse through which we debate and resolve our differences. A system of government. Our system doesn't just allow for that. Our system depends on that. One side may win, one side may lose. We dust ourselves off, and then we start anew, knowing that each one fought in pursuit of their honest ideals. But today, too often, genuine disagreement quickly gives way to intense distrust. We spend far more time trying to convict one another than we do trying to develop our own convictions. Being against someone has more currency than being for anything. And each of us, each of us has found ourselves operating on the wrong side of this equation from time to time. And all of this gets amplified by technology with an incentive structure that preys on people's fears and algorithms that play on anger. Outrage has become a brand. And as with anything that gets marketed, it gets scaled up. It becomes more industrialized, more cold, more unfeeling. And that's the thing. For all the noise, there is actually less passion, less energy. We sort of default to lazy litmus tests and shop-worn denunciations. It's just emotional pablum fed through a trough of outrage. It's exhausting. It saps meaning from our politics. And it discourages good people from pursuing public service. I mean, the symptoms of it are in our face all the time. And we have to recognize that its roots run deep, deep into our culture, deep into our society today. And all of this pulls on the threads of our common humanity in what could be our unraveling. But nothing, nothing says it has to be this way. We all struggle. We are all fighting some battle in our lives. So why do we insist on fighting one another so bitterly? This kind of politics starts from a place of outrage and then seeks to tear us down from there. So, key question, how do we get back to aspiration and inclusion? Where we start with humility and then we seek to build on that. I don't know the answer to that. Well, I've got a little clue for you. There we go. Got a little clue for you there. Uh, Speaker Ryan, the purveyor 
the peddlers of that outrage, it would be helpful if you would be willing to name them by name, even when they're in your own party, even when it may make you uncomfortable, even when it risks office, and you're gone now. So I see you're stumped by this, Speaker Ryan, so let me help you out a little bit. Be honest. Be honest, whoever they are, in whatever party they reside. Be willing to clearly enunciate the name of the purveyors, the peddlers, I believe as you called them, of that outrage. Call them for who they are. That would, that's a start. And don't rationalize for them and don't apologize for them. That would be another follow-up. All right, a bunch of other things to get to before 2.30. 2.13, News Radio WTMJ. News Radio WTMJ. Jerry in for Jeff. Merry Christmas. My goodness. It's not. It's just under a week. Christmas Eve, that is. Christmas. Or Christmas Day, actually. Well, no, yeah, it's just under a week from Christmas. And I pretty much have all my shopping done. It's amazing. Man, if you knew me personally, you would understand what an accomplishment that is. And I panicked. I went Christmas shopping Saturday, and I was messed up. I was thinking it was the Saturday before Christmas. And no, there's another Saturday squeezed in there yet before Christmas. And the stores in the Green Bay area, the mall area there, they weren't obscene. They weren't horrible. Like, oh, this is good. Oh, yeah. There's one more Saturday yet. Before Christmas, that would explain that. I mean, two items. Now, I have to admit, <laughs> I mostly shop for wife, employee, and, uh, you know, my wife does the heavy lifting on shopping for the others in our lives. So it's not as impressive as it sounds. Yesterday was a fascinating day in court. It was a day where, obviously, the President of the United States was optimistic. Michael Flynn, Mr. Trump's former national security advisor, appeared before Judge Emmett Sullivan to be sentenced to what he expected to be a term of probation after pleading guilty to lying to federal investigators about conversations with the Russian ambassador. The office of the special counsel, Robert Mueller, had earlier filed a memo saying because of the extensive cooperation by Flynn, hey, I'd like to see him not serve any prison time. Then, last week, and I think this was a huge factor, in a memo about their client sentencing, Mr. Flynn's lawyers implied that he had been tricked into lying and that the FBI acted improperly in interviewing him. This was first raised in an opinion piece by the Wall Street Journal. It was then picked up by others in the conservative media and the White House, Sarah Sanders, and the president himself. The president, before the hearing yesterday, wished Flynn good luck and said it will be interesting to see what he has to say. It sounds as though the president thought Flynn was going to withdraw his guilty plea. 
That's not what happened. Now, by the way, the judge acted badly here as well. The judge overstepped what he accused Flynn of doing, had to later retract and apologize, and that was bad. That that was bad. Now, that said, and absolutely the judge allowed his emotions to get away with him, the Wall Street Journal thought perhaps they were doing Michael Flynn a favor. We're going to float this idea that he was entrapped. We're going to float this idea that, you know, he was tricked. Never mind what he knows, how knowledgeable he is. He was tricked. He didn't know what he was doing. The Wall Street Journal is still sticking by that nonsense. The judge, again, also acting badly here, letting his emotions get the best of him. But the judge made a great point. Are you saying you're not guilty? Because I'm not going to let you plead guilty if you are out there publicly saying you're not guilty. You can't be both. This would be, and I dealt with this yesterday, this would be the issue of when reality meets fantasy. And that's why I did the radio experiment that I did yesterday. The two collided in a courtroom yesterday. It ended with Flynn now not being sentenced until March and is likely going to uh, give a lot more information. Because the judge made it clear, look, I, you know, it's at my discretion. I don't have to take any recommendation, and you're probably going to go to prison. And it sounds like a big part of that was anger over this nonsense that he was tricked into confessing. You want to talk about a, a, a fantasy backfiring badly. Wall Street Journal trying to cover its tracks in an editorial today. It's one thing for them to opine on that. It's another one thing for the White House to opine on that. It's another thing, though, for his attorneys to engage in that. And that's what really hurt him. Which is why he was then forced to say, now I'm guilty, Your Honor, and I'm not saying I'm not guilty. This is, a, this is exactly what I was talking about yesterday. When alternative reality, or alternative narrative, as CNN calls it, and reality collides. And ultimately, everywhere where people are living in an alternative reality in politics today, at some point or another... It's going to collide with reality. 221 News Radio WTMJ. WTMJ and our friends at today's TMJ4 need your help to feed the hungry. Today's TMJ4 drop-off or dial all-day holiday food drive going on right now. We want you to fill our lobby with healthy, non-perishable food. That's until 7 p.m. today. You don't even have to get out of your car, for crying out loud. We have volunteers standing by to take your donation as you pull through our driveway at 720 East Capitol Drive. Stop by before 7 tonight to help out. This is a story that I don't think has gotten, actually, it hasn't gotten a lot of coverage even in in northeast Wisconsin. And it has gotten even less coverage 
outside that area of the state. A Brown County judge has determined a De Pere ordinance barring discrimination based on gender identity infringes on the religious freedom of local churches. This is an ordinance approved by the De Pere City Council last year. Here's what it does. It prohibits employers, businesses, and landlords from discriminating against people based on gender identity or expression, transgender individuals. The protections cover those who identify as transgender and gender non-binary. This prompted a lawsuit. A group of five churches and Lakeshore Communications, which owns Christian radio station Q90FM, full disclosure, the general manager of that station is a friend of mine, filed a lawsuit in February seeking exemption from the ordinance. The churches that are party to the lawsuit and then they mention the churches. On Friday, Judge William Atkinson ruled, this is from the Green Bay Press-Gazette, by the way. On Friday, Judge William Atkinson ruled the policy infringes on the church's freedom of religion and said they shouldn't be considered public accommodations that would be subject to the ordinance mandates. So in other words, they're, they're not the way businesses are. And therefore, they should not, churches, be held to the same standards as businesses. The ruling echoed one of the primary arguments brought forward by the church's attorneys. They said the same thing. Look, you, you can't, you can't uh, hold us to that standard. They also contended the churches and a Christian radio station should be free to hire employees that align with their mission and beliefs. At the end, and, and this is hard for some people to wrap their head around, a Christian radio station is a mission. It's an outreach like any church. It's a ministry, is what it is. It's a ministry. In their original complaint, the churches and radio station pointed to religious doctrine that prohibits same-sex marriage and considers gender dysphoria a disorder of creation. The complaint also noted that Christ the Rock Church requires people to use bathrooms that correspond to their biological sex, excluding a single-use restroom open to anyone. Now, the city of De Pere argued that these claims are all hypothetical and remote. The ordinance hasn't even been applied yet. So how can you be harmed by this when it hasn't even taken effect? However, the judge didn't accept that. The definition of public accommodation does not apply to institutions or clubs that are distinctly private. Well, which makes defining a church interesting. It certainly is a private organization, but it's not exclusive membership. Most churches, anybody can walk in and attend a service. I'm in an interesting position on this. I have a transgender relative. Uh, my open-mindedness on that issue has obviously evolved in the past few years. I think this ruling, though, goes beyond the whole issue of the Transgender Protection Ordinance of the City of De Pere. I think that is actually peripheral here to the larger point. And that is, if you start 
treating churches the way it appears this ordinance did, in fact, treat them, that they're public accommodations subject to the ordinance mandates, you are, in the city of De Pere, in my opinion, essentially, and it is just my opinion, you're essentially throwing out the First Amendment. That's what you're doing. Whatever I could agree or disagree with when it comes to an individual church's policy on the LGBTQ community in general or the transgender community specifically, whatever my opinion is on that, whether I agree or disagree with what a church's belief and or policy is, I, I don't think is the issue here. I think this ordinance, and by the way, there are other ordinances in other cities in Wisconsin that have avoided this. And these churches and the radio station warned the city of De Pere, I can tell you that, where they said, hey, this isn't going to fly. You've put a poison pill in here that's different from ordinances in other communities. And this just simply isn't going to fly. They were right. I don't know what the city of De Pere is going to do next. They're going to review it. I don't know if they're going to appeal. I don't know what's going to happen. I think if they appeal, they're not going to do well. That's my belief on that because I, I think Judge Atkinson actually got this right. The First Amendment is still the First Amendment. All right. A lot of heavy topics today. One for fun after the news. Die Hard. Is it a Christmas movie? wonder if any... I wonder what the gender divide on the calls will be on this. Hey, it's another Christmas song. Yay, another off-returning, royalty-earning Christmas song. I've got plenty more, so go buy a Good thing we don't have a video camera. I'm kind of dancing to this. 234 News Radio WTMJ. Very Merry Christmas to you. Jerry Bader in for Jeff Wagner all this week. A big chunk of next week. Jeff back. In 2019, it's been 30 years. It's been 30 years since the original Die Hard movie hit theaters. No, yeah, 88. And for almost that long, people have been debating whether it's a Christmas movie. We might finally have an answer. 20th Century Fox, the movie studio that owns the popular action franchise, released a new trailer declaring Die Hard the greatest Christmas story ever told. This thing is a hoot. We have the audio from it. Kyle, go ahead. This is John. Nice beer. He just wants to spend Christmas with the family. Is Daddy coming home with you? We'll see what Santa and Mommy can do. But when he gets stuck at the office party... Merry Christmas! It'll be a holiday... Merry Christmas! He'll never forget. <laughs> Welcome to the party, pal! This Christmas... The time of miracles, so be of good cheer. Only John can drive somebody that crazy. Get ready to jingle some bells. And deck the halls. With bows of Bruce Willis. Move to the coast. We get together, have a few laughs. Alan Rickman. Do you really think you have a chance against us, Mr. Cowboy? Yippee-ki-yay, Together in the greatest Christmas story ever told. I got some bad news for you, Dwayne. <laughs> Hans. Booby. Eat it, Harvey. Holy <laughs> oh, shit. 
I'm starting to get a bad feeling up here. Merry Christmas. Die Hard. This is their idea of Christmas. I gotta be here for New Year's. <laughs> I love that. 414-799-1620. Yes or no? Is Die Hard a Christmas movie? Mary in Whitewater, you're up first. What say you? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, thanks for taking my call, and that mm-hmm. just convinced it for me. I was already, <laughs> I was already certain that it was, and that sealed the deal. Um, so all it, can, all it takes for you, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I, I've been getting into this discussion with this guy I bowl with, because he says, no, it's not, no, it's not, no, it's not. But then again, <laughs> he says, the, the theme from the Charlie Brown Christmas show is not a Christmas song. Even even though I showed him, it was specifically written for that Christmas show. So you know his his brain isn't where it should be. <laughs> but so no, I, I, I really originally probably didn't think it was, but my kids over the years were like, "No, we got to watch Die Hard." So okay, yeah, it is a Christmas movie. So you think it's a Christmas movie? The guy you're seeing does not. No, no, no. A guy I bowl with. Oh. No, it's a, diff- a different. Oh, guy. you no, bowl with a guy you bowl yeah, with. Yeah, okay, yeah. He okay. Said, he said. He he never thought it was, but then he saw Bruce Willis on a TV show, and Bruce Willis says, no, it's not. Well, I don't know where he was during filming. <laughs> Mary, thanks oh, a lot yeah. for the call. Appreciate it. Got a bunch of uh, texts on this. Of course it is. We're watching Die Hard, Lethal Weapon, and The Shining on Christmas Eve. I love this one uh, from 715 area code. Yes, it is. Zippy Kaye, Mr. Bader. <laughs> 50-year-old female here from Clintonville says, yes. What say you? 414-799-1620. Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, go ahead. Hey, Jerry. I'm quite familiar with Die Hard because I worked at the movie theater when it first came out. And I don't think it is a Christmas movie for three reasons. One, it came out in the summer. It did not come out like around Christmas time. Um, Also... Um, the events of the movie could easily have taken place at a different time, like it could have happened like St. Patrick's Day or New Year's Eve. And then three, uh, you know, I hate to be the, you know, the the stick in the mud here, but k- killing each other and like and like shooting them up and stuff like that doesn't really seem to coincide with like basic Christian themes and like the Christmas spirit and things like that. Well, I've been holding. Actually, I've been holding back here, Jeff. Uh-huh. I agree with you. I agree with you. <laughs> it's a Christmas movie. I don't. I have. I have online. I have playfully suggested that it was. Now, it is, by the way, one of my all-time favorite movies. But it's not a Christmas movie. So, Jeff, yeah, thanks a lot for the call. Uh, uh, appreciate it. it's a great movie. Uh, Harry and Waukesha. Yes. 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 All caps. Uh, Mitch from Mayville says, absolutely yes. Uh, if not, it's my favorite. It's, it's my Christmas movie. LOL. Uh, I, uh, it, it's, it's really not a Christmas movie. I mean, come on. I have never watched it at Christmas. That's not what I, I, I'm with the warm, fuzzy Christmas movies. I my faith I just with my faith especially the past couple of years Christmas to me is about Christ 
So I can't. I, I could never call it a Christmas movie. I don't even. I haven't watched it in many, many, many years. So I've been just slightly, slightly deceptive here. It was enthusiastic. I love the trailer, though. I do love, I think that trailer is incredibly creative. They did it like it was for any warm, fuzzy, almost rom-com Christmas movie, which was hysterical. Mark in Lannan. Mark, go ahead. Yes. Uh, no, it's not a Christmas movie, and I agree with you. It is a marketing ploy on, on that, on that uh, little commercial on there. Um, but... It's not a Christmas movie. It just happens to be on the Christmas season, just same as The Wonderful Life, Gremlins, Trains, Planes, and Automobiles, Home Alone, and Stalag 17, and mention many more. You know, if you think those movies are Christmas movies, you have to think that our Die Hard is, too. If it's and about, it's... If it's not about Christmas, like, it's like you said, it's not about Christmas, it's not a Christmas movie. That's it's it's really not about Christmas. It probably could take place any time of the year. And here's what I would say, Mark. In fact, the way that they parodied the idea that it's a Christmas movie, I think, illustrates it's not a Christmas movie. Thanks a lot for the call. Do appreciate it. Now, I mean, there were things. For example, my wife, and she's right about this, my wife thinks I'm weird during a blizzard. For example, in northeast Wisconsin, when that big blizzard came on April 15th of this year, we, we got 25 or 27 inches of snow in the Green Bay area. In a blizzard, and I have it on VHS, for crying out loud, and we still have a VHS player. You know what movie I watch every time during a blizzard? Airport. It's perfect. It's the perfect perfect blizzard movie now it's not a christmas movie it takes place in winter in chicago it doesn't take place at christmas but it's a perfect blizzard movie all right i there's something else i want to get to but if you have any thoughts on this at all uh, we can hear from you 414-799-1620 243 news radio wtmj Two forty-five News Radio WTMJ. Jerry in for Jeff. I one more text. One more text on the uh, Die Hard. It's not Christmas. The Die Hard is Die Hard a Christmas movie. It's not Christmas until the first Yippee Kaye is heard. Oh no! Love I love the movie. Absolutely love the movie. Although, quite frankly, I don't. I try not to watch a lot of violent stuff anymore. It's just that's just where I'm at. But I I remember I wasn't a big Bruce Willis fan when that came out in '88, and I don't. I'm like 98 percent sure I did not see it in the theater. Uh, but I even like seeing it in rental or whatever. Really, I started watching. I'm like, wow, this is really good. And Alan Rickman, and he was just that actor that, man, he stole just about every scene that he was in. If you haven't seen Alan Rickman in Galaxy Quest, it's a Star Trek spoof. If you haven't seen Alan Rickman in Galaxy Quest, you just don't know what you're missing. It is awesome. Hey, want to let you know, we just buttoned it down 
in an email that I just saw, but I received it earlier. Uh, we have, uh, let me just confirm this so I don't get this wrong. We have U.S. Senator Ron Johnson uh, to start the 2 o'clock hour tomorrow. Kyle, that's for your planning purposes as well. Uh, via phone, U.S. Senator Ron Johnson, 2 p.m. tomorrow. Lots to talk about, uh, as you would imagine. Um, gosh, I don't even know where it begins. You've got government funding. You've got uh, Ukraine-Russia tensions. You've got everything else going on. What's it going to look like with the divided government? So we will have Senator Johnson on tomorrow. Now, this was more or less breaking as I was on the air yesterday. So I, I stumbled and fumbled around with this a little bit. Didn't really have a lot to say about it. The passing of Penny Marshall. And the Journal Sentinel in, I, I believe, the Green Sheet section has a story, a longer story on this. And I think they got this exactly right. Let me just read the beginning of this story. Milwaukee has always seen itself as Fonzie, but it seems everyone else sees us as Laverne. Happy Days was the show that put Milwaukee on the primetime map, but it was the spinoff. Laverne and Shirley, they became connected to Milwaukee's image. I absolutely agree with that. And they point out something that I, I always chuckled. You know, Penny Marshall is not remembered for being a great actress. She's a good actress. But Penny Marshall's behind the scenes. You know, the director, she's got big movie credits to her name. She, like her ex-husband, Rob Reiner, a lot of success. I think both would be called average-ish actors. But she was very good behind the camera. I think Big was Oscar nominated in 88. wasn't her first movie, 88 or 89. But really put her on the map. And it also showed the versatility of Tom Hanks. And that you know, that's not mutually exclusive to her efforts. But even with that New York accent, and they point this out, even with that New York accent, I really do think she caught, I wouldn't just say Milwaukee, they say Milwaukee, but the Midwest essence. And here's what I mean by that. Okay, so this was on in the 70s. Uh, I have a number of relatives who lived in the Milwaukee area then, aunts and uncles and so on, cousins. I never visited Milwaukee in that time. It was not until the 1980s that I would first spend any time in Milwaukee. But they just, to me, captured, and I mean this in the best way possible, the perfect tone of blue-collar, middle-class Milwaukee in the 50s and 60s. I knew people who fit that category, and I think, you know, when I think of her father, I can't think of the actor that played him. I mean, Carmine Ragusa was, a, uh, to me, just purely a New York character in my mind. But aside from that, I mean, I just, I, I really thought that it, it was, and maybe not everyone agreed, I thought it was a flattering portrayal of Milwaukeeans. 
Hey, you didn't see any Milwaukee. As the paper points out, City Hall in the opening shot, the opening credits. And that was about it. I can't say I was a huge fan of the show. It had its moments. In the last couple of seasons, it moved actually to California, the setting. I don't, I was not. Again, I, you know, my last couple of years in high school is when I would have seen any of it. But if you're going to have your city portrayed on television, you could do far worse than um, Laverne and Shirley. And the thing that I would say, yeah, Happy Days, of course, was set in Milwaukee as well, but you would never know it. I mean, there's... Uh, there's an episode where they want to watch the Packers and Lions on Thanksgiving Day, and Mom is all upset about that. But other than that, and, he, and again, even though you never saw any, you know, it'd be difficult because it would it would have been Milwaukee from 27 years ago. But I I really think that it that that um, show did a great service to the city of Milwaukee. Here's the mind-boggling part for me. So I'm reading this story, and they have a picture of Penny Marshall posing with her brother, Gary Marshall, who's the creator of Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley. They are posing next to the Fonzie statue at its unveiling in Milwaukee on August 19, 2008. That statue's been there 10 years already? Are you kidding me? The last 10 years of my life have gone by in a blink. I, I, I saw, I, if you had get, if you had said, how long has the Fonzie statue been there? I think I would have said five years. And then, I don't know, four or five years? Really? 2008? 2008. I remember, and I warmed up to it. I didn't think it looked like Fonzie at first. I just, I didn't. I, I have seen the Mary Tyler Moore statue in uh, Minneapolis. I kind of, what I like about that one, it's more, you know, it's where she's throwing her hat up, like the, you know, at the beginning of the TV show. I don't want to say it's more classy. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But it's it's just kind of cool because Milwaukee in the 50s and 60s, a, a major American city. Obviously, the population has declined dramatically in the city proper since then. You know, the, the Braves were top of the baseball world or near the top during that 56, 57, 58. Uh, winning the series on 57, it was. Uh, it just, you know, I, I really thought that it was a great complimentary thing. All right, a couple of final thoughts, and what's in store for you after three in a few minutes. 254, News Radio WTMJ.